Have you ever wondered where our Christmas traditions come from? I just finished a great book by Ace Collins. It's entitled The Stories Behind the Great Christmas Traditions, and I'm going to go over a number of them in this episode. Stay tuned. In a world of incompetent bosses, micromanagers, and petty tyrants, one management professor claims that he can help you become the kind of leader that you would want to follow. You are listening to The Leadersmith. Now, here is your host, Darren Gertis. Okay, so this show is about leadership, uh, but it's secondarily about business in general and family and religion and anything that really, current events, anything that touches on leadership. So I'm going to approach Christmas from this perspective. So there's not a lot of direct leadership lessons, but you'll be intrigued by how things connect to each other when we're talking about Christmas. So depending on who you're talking to, they celebrate Christmas quite differently maybe than you do. Uh, some people celebrate it as a religious holiday. That's how I experience it. Some people it's just, you know, merrymaking. To other people it's just about family. Um, and in some way they're all right, but Christmas is the story of the birth of Christ, the story of Jesus coming into the world who's going to be the Savior. Now that's very important to the religious crowd, right? But there's more to the story than that. So Christmas largely co-opted pagan holidays. So uh, there was pagan holidays going on before Christmas, holly and the evergreen in Roman and then Viking kind of cultures. You know, it, it demonstrated, hey, there's life in this wintry death all around us where all these trees are barren. Hey, there's there's still this this one tree or mistletoe and holly and those kind of things are, wow, they're still vibrant. They're still alive. Now, they saw that as some kind of spiritual, maybe mystical, um, pagan magic, okay? Christians saw that as, and they'd come along later on and explain, use that as a teaching tool to explain God's eternal life and, and his redemptive work in spite of a sinful, fallen world. So there wasn't like this immediate move, like Christ comes into the world and he's born. And then all of a sudden we're now celebrating Christmas. It wasn't even right after his death, because right after his death, Christians are persecuted for the next couple hundred years. And it wasn't until Constantine that they're actually able to come above ground and worship out in, and practice that uh, in, in public. So you're not going to it's not until 300 something A.D. where you're starting to see Christmas being celebrated like as a regular thing up till that point it's still this pagan feast so this is for centuries it's still pagan revelry and it actually continued as pagan revelry depending on where you are and who you are for millennium okay so christmas and you know the pagan and the and the christian roots of it are kind of intertwined for a while again it's co-opted by the church over time to explain different things so in England, for example, revelers are demanding their from their lords, the elite, um, you know, hey, give us this stuff. And that's the way that Christmas works. It's like a day for the poor to say to the uh, to the rich, hey, give us stuff. Uh, it's almost like Mardi Gras. It was just this big party. Uh, now, if you think of the song, we wish you a Merry Christmas, right? We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas, right? Okay. What are they singing there? It, and it never made sense to me until I was reading this. Oh, bring us some figgy, but we won't go until we get some. Now, remember that we won't, I mean, what a, what a jerk. We're, we're demanding this and we're not going to, yeah, because that was this, that was how they dealt with Christmas. It was still this 
pagan, you know, revelry. It was not the birth of Christ. And that's what's going on there. So let's talk about the pagan thing. So the pagan uh, origins was the celebration of Saturnalia. Remember Saturn, the, the planet. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a pagan god that's being uh, praised. It's the end of winter. Uh, and, and now the dates are really interesting. December 17th until the 24th. So the 24th of December is Christmas Eve. 25th is Christmas, according to the church. The, the, so the, the church co-opted it, established Christ's birthday as December 25th. Now, it's a little bit murky about when Christ's actual birthday was. Um, there are dates all over that range from anywhere from September to the Epiphany, which is January 6th. Uh, it's it's a great question where it actually is, but it's established by Pope Julius in 320 as December 25th, and then Constantine becomes who has you know become emperor and converted to Christianity, really inscribes it as a ongoing holiday from that point forward. Again, why so late? Because Christians were underground trying not to be killed, because the pagans of the time would kill Christians because they wouldn't worship their gods. They would only worship Christ. Okay, so in 129, you have the first recorded Christmas carol of some sort. It's called the Angel's Hymn, or, or one of the earliest uh, recorded carols, and it's probably nothing like uh, what we think of as uh, Christmas carols. It's probably more like a uh, Gregorian chant to, to our ears. Um, the Christmas tree also goes way back. Remember, there are these pagan uh, rituals, and they see the evergreen growing when everything else is dormant and what they think of as almost dead in winter. But the Vikings revered it. And St. Boniface is a monk in England. He co-ops the tree uh, as a symbol, not of magic, not of this dark magic that, you know, somehow is, is uh, protecting of you, it's talisman, but as the symbol of the eternal life that you have in Christ. So he co-ops it and makes it a teaching tool. The triangular shape he used to explain the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And for five centuries, I didn't know this, for five centuries, Christmas trees were hung upside down. I don't know why it didn't explain in the, in the book, but for some reason, that's how they did that. Now, they also, before they were called Christmas trees, were called paradise trees because they were representing eternal life. And so that makes sense. The Garden of Eden, paradise, that kind of thing. Martin Luther uh, was a big champion of the Christmas tree in, in the during the Reformation. This is 1500 to 1600-ish, right? Martin Luther uh, appreciates how the the evergreen tree glistens in the moonlight. He eventually is going to attach candles to the branches. The candlelight represents the hope that's found in Christ, his birth, his crucifix, uh, crucifixion, his resurrection. And so it's just, it's a beautiful display. And again, it's a teaching tool. Now, a lot of what happened is these, uh, the Christians co-opt what's done by pagans and make it a teaching tool to explain doctrine. So, for example, in 1223, St. Francis, uh, he puts out a nativity scene to explain what happened in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, uh, where it's talking about, what, you know, Jesus's uh, birth. And so this teaching, so if you've ever seen um, like a, a nativity play at a church with little kids involved, it's bad acting, but it's powerful. It, it helps you understand what's going on. So he had children acting out the Christmas story in this uh, nativity scene with a manger and 
things along those lines. And so it was a good way for him to explain what was going on, not just using words, but painting a visual picture as well. So for centuries, uh, we celebrated pagan feasts, and uh, the Puritans, when they came along, have wanted nothing to do with this. They refused to celebrate anything because of the association with pagan revelry. So how did we come to celebrate Christmas? It's a really interesting question. What we celebrate now in modern America is less than 200 years old. Now, it has roots going back to Martin Luther and the Reformation, um, but it's it's really a fairly modern way of celebrating Christmas. Again, Martin Luther, he appreciated the Christmas tree. He liked carols. Um, and, and, you know, he was fine with taking current songs that were popular and turning them to a new set of lyrics and then, you know, singing those again as a teaching tool. But again, this was a way that Martin Luther was co-opting what was pagan and reforming and reviving it and bringing something new into it. Candy canes, for example, solved a real problem. Uh, in 1670, there was a German choir master who's trying to keep the kids quiet in the church service. So, you know, you can't just bribe them with candy. Parents might not like that, but he gave, he decided he was going to give them this peppermint stick of candy, but he had the candy maker create a a hook on it so it would be like the shepherd's hook from the christmas story in matthew and luke and in doing that it became another teaching tool and it became very popular within a short order they were hanging on christmas trees in the 1920s they added the red and white stripes candy makers figured out how to do that and that became another teaching tool because it represented the purity and the blood of christ Handel's Messiah, uh, hallelujah, 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 right? We all know of Handel's Messiah. Even Charlie Brown knows about Handel's Messiah, okay? Handel's Messiah, 1741. It's part of a broader oratio. It's a, a the small opera, and it's delivered at Easter, but it's eventually transplanted to the Christmas season because of the portion that, that we all know that focuses on Christ's birth. We get to uh, Silent Night, uh, 1818. Franz Gruber writes Silent Night. Uh, again, it's in German, right? Stille Nacht, Geilige Nacht, Geile Schläft, Einsam Wacht. Silent Night, Holy Night, all is calm, all is bright. And that's 1818. And then this, this, a sentiment toward celebrating Christmas is going to become even more pronounced during the dark times of the Civil War. Um, and now I'm getting ahead of myself, so let's let's do this. The Carol st even stopped wars, right? In, in 1870, the Franco-Prussian War was on, and the Christmas Carol, Silent Night, actually stopped the war for a day, where both sides were singing Christmas carols. They stopped fighting and were celebrating. Same thing happened in World War One. Both sides stopped fighting, sang Christmas carols, even gave each other time to bury their dead. Um, churches would hold religious services. Now, this is the mid-18-somethings, right? 1850, 60, 70. We start to get into this place. Churches are kind of reviving the religious understanding of Christmas because they're holding services on Christmas or on Christmas Eve to honor the birth of the Savior, where traditionally it had been later on during uh, Epiphany. And we'll talk about that in the next segment. Um, German immigrants came over in the 1820s. And then we have uh, Clement Clark Moore's 
poem, The Night Before Christmas. Um, and then we have Dickens, who, who wrote A Christmas Carol in 1843. And Now, A Christmas Carol isn't religious. It, it has a redemptive theme, but it's kind of devoid of Christ. So there's this mutation involved here where it's a focus on family and kindness and peace on earth and goodwill to men but where do they get the idea of peace on earth and goodwill to men it's from luke this is what the angels tell the the angels tell the shepherds uh about the birth of christ peace on earth goodwill toward men uh in 1843 christmas cards began accidentally sir henry cole couldn't complete his correspondence in time so he decided um you know kind of as a trick hey this picture of christmas on this card and i'm just going to write a little note inside and voila it's all done rather than lengthy correspondence and it caught on it became a big hit this christmas scene uh it was short it solved the problem of of being overwhelmed with his correspondence and people loved him it became a tradition but that only started in 1843 and 1862 uh thomas nast in harper's weekly drew santa claus as we now know him so santa claus is um you know over i'll talk about santa claus a little bit more in just a little bit but the way that we understand santa claus now goes only back as far as uh, 1862, which is mind-boggling. By this time, Christmas trees have become popular. They're easy to obtain. They're reasonably cheap. All you have to do is go out and cut down a tree and drag it into your house. And so remember, most of America is rural at this time, and most of the world is rural at, still at this time. Um, and so it was a reasonably cheap thing. It just demanded a little sweat equity. And how would you decorate it with some popcorn? And if you wanted to get extravagant, you'd put a little coloring into the popcorn uh, strands, and that's how you decorate the tree. In 1851, Mark Carr recognizes an opportunity where New Yorkers, people who live in the city, can't easily go just cut down any tree. Um, there's not a lot of trees in the city itself. So he goes up to the Catskills with a wagon, cuts down a bunch of trees, drags them back to New York City, and establishes the first Christmas tree lot. These Christmas tree lots are now pervasive all across the United States and the world. So far, decorations at this point in the 1860s are handmade, but commercial ornaments start being produced in the 1860s. And by 1880, Woolworths Five and Dime, now remember, Five and Dime is the equivalent of now our dollar store from inflation, right? They're, they start selling these. Uh, 1895, Grover Cleveland ha has the first Christmas tree in the White House illuminated with electric lights. I mean, this is something, electric lights. And by 1900, Woolworth, remember the five and nine, is now selling $25 million in ornaments alone. $25 million worth of ornaments. That's how much this is catching on. By 1908, electric lights are still cost prohibitive. It costs at least $100 just for the parts for a string of, of electric lights. Now, uh, that's mind-boggling to us, but here's what's more mind-boggling. That $100, by 1910, a string of lights, of eight lights, costs tw just $12. So it comes down from $100 in parts to just $12. But $12 isn't $12 as we're thinking about it. In 1910, $12 was $328. So it's still cost prohibitive for most people to buy these electric lights. By 1920s, colored, long-lasting, low heat bulbs are invented. Everybody can afford them. By 23, Calvin Coolidge has the White House Christmas tree lighting. And this is a big to-do. Now, Again, you're seeing this this building and building and building of what's going on, and I haven't even really talked about Santa Claus yet. 
So there's a reason for that. Santa is kind of now the big feature within Christmas, but let's let's talk about how this came along. So Santa is based on St. Nicholas. He's the Archbishop of Myra. Uh, he lived from 270 to 343 AD. So there's a real guy named St. Nicholas who was an archbishop. He's a pious, devoted, uh, devout Christian. Uh, he cares for the poor. And so a lot of this comes from what he was doing, trying to give gifts to the poor. Uh, in the Catholic, Catholic tradition, he is the patron saint of children and orphans to this day. Uh, he dies on December 6th of 343. And so a tradition springs up after his death, um, where on St. Nicholas's, I'm quoting now, on St. Nicholas's Eve, youngsters would set out food for Nicholas and straw for his donkey. The next morning, obedient children awoke to find their gifts replaced with sweets and toys. So you can see how that became what Santa does now, leaving out, you know, we, now we leave out cookies and milk. We don't leave out um, straw for the donkey, but okay, that's that's where they come from. So, there, and there's an, this amalgam between St. Nicholas and another character. Um, do, do you remember the movie, The Patriot? And, uh, you know, this Mel Gibson playing the Patriot in the Revolutionary War. He's an amalgam of two historical figures, Francis Marion, the Swamp Fox, and uh, Thomas Sumter, who was known as the Gamecock, and they were harassing the British. So in the same way, there's an amalgam between St. Nicholas and another figure, the Duke of Borovoy. Um, and eventually, um, he becomes the leader of Bohemia. He's born in 1907. On Christmas Eve, he tramps through the woods to bring... Uh, now, again, this is not on St. Nicholas's uh, day on December 6th. This is on Christmas Eve. He starts to tramp through the woods to bring food and clothes to the poor. And now we remember him as Good King Wenceslas. Okay. And there's a song devoted to his, uh, to his honor. Okay. In the 10th century, the author Metaphrastus tells a, a story of resembling St. Nicholas. And so that's where the tradition starts to catch on. And now it mutates a little depending on where you are. In Germany, it's told one way. In France, a little bit different. In England, different yet. So in Germany, St. Nicholas's legend becomes Wanstamen. I, I don't know how to pronounce that. It, it means Christmas man. And it's the, this St. Nicholas-like figure is Christ's helper distributing gifts to children. In France, it's Pere Noel. Like, Noel, Noel, right? Pere Noel. And he brings cookies and cakes and he leaves gifts in children's shoes. Now, I don't know why he's putting them in children's shoes. That's beyond me. But okay, that's how it works in France. In England, he's known as Father Christmas. And he's a thin elderly man with a large bag of toys. So you can see this, this like strange universe of Christmas Santa-like figures but it, it, they're kind of converging eventually. Now we get to the Pro, uh, Protestant Reformation. That's the that's a 10th century, and in the next few centuries, you see these other figures. In the Protestant Reformation, 17 or 1517 to 1648, uh, many reformers don't like the pagan roots. Now Luther's an exception because he's going to co-opt them. But the reformers are not big on saints. Okay, remember they're dealing with the Catholic Church and abuses of the Catholic Church, and so they're not big on saints. And so saints are banned in England and Germany. Uh, they kept 
you know, they, they, they kept them far away from Christmas as we know it. So St. Nicholas's Day, uh, it kind of, you know, December 6th is no longer a thing. But the people were already used to this gift-giving custom, and they kept it. And so what happens is the gift-giving just gets pushed forward to Christmas from December 6th to December 25th. Now, in America, uh, the Puritans didn't celebrate Christmas. They didn't want to have anything to do with either the pagan roots or the saints of the Catholic Church. And so there's no carols, no gifts. It's illegal even to mention St. Nicholas. I mean, that's how far the Puritans are from this. But America is a land of immigrants. The Germans and the Dutch traditions, um, the Germans came over and, and they brought with them uh, their traditions, and they brought with them the Christmas tree and the carols and things along those lines. Now, remember, personnel is policy, so the people are bringing what they are and who they are with them. Okay, so how do we get to Santa? So this is now 150 years later from the Puritans, 1808. Washington Irving is writing about Sinterklaas in a history of New York. And I'm going to quote the book again, because English speaking children found the Dutch name for St. Nicholas, Sinterklaas, strange, they uttered it so quickly that it came out as Santa Claus. And thus this name became Americanized. So that's where we got Santa Claus from. It's a mispronunciation of Santa Claus. Okay, in 1832, a theology professor and Episcopal bishop in New York, Clement Clark Moore, released a poem that had Santa coming on Christmas Eve, not on December 6th. It was called The Night Before Christmas. Twas the night before Christmas. It went all through the house. Not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. Now we remember that story, but he described Santa differently. He was a, quote, chubby, plump, and right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. That's very different than uh, Father Christmas, who is an old but skinny man with a beard. In 1863, Thomas Nast, who is a German immigrant, gave us the first rendering of Santa in Harper's Weekly. So this is Santa Claus as we know him beginning to form. And then Nast also uh, is the guy that gave us the Republican elephant and the Democrat donkey. We'll forgive him for doing that. But Santa was a jolly old fat man. And Nast actually modeled Santa Claus on the industrial robber barons of the era. So when you're looking at Santa Claus and thinking all these nostalgic thoughts, just remember, these were the robber barons. Okay, Nas gave us a lot more detail about Santa over successive years. He, he painted the picture more carefully, more fully, gave us the workshop, gave us the naughty and nice list. He invented that. Uh, in 1885, he grew a picture of Santa's home. And then in 1886, author George P. Webster explained that Santa's toy factory was at the North Pole. That's why we haven't seen it. In 1931, Santa, as we knew today, actually came into being. And so we, we go back as far as the 1860s-ish, 1880s for Nast, and we see what Santa was looking like there. And then in 1931, Coca-Cola ads started producing pictures of Santa as we know him today. He's more jolly, more fat, more plump, and he's more Santa. I mean, he's just Santa as we think of Santa. In 1933, the Christmas tree lighting in New York City in Rockefeller Center um, became a big thing. And there was this, you know, this feeling that Christmas is this 
thing that we're all part of. The Christmas season became commercially very important, and uh, it's the most important couple of weeks for most department stores uh, going into the 1930s, but something else happened. People were buying gifts, and I'm, I'm now going to quote again. Buying gifts for soldiers fighting in a world war extended the Christmas season even more. During World War II, with men stationed halfway around the world from their homes, the post office declared that for troops to receive their Christmas presents on time, they would have to be mailed very early. In response, stores put up holiday displays even before the beginning of December, and the month-long Thanksgiving to Christmas selling season arrived. And so that's how we got this whole, like, Thanksgiving to Christmas, Black Friday, all this kind of thing. That's how that all evolved. It was because of a, a necessity to make sure that soldiers' gifts were there, you know, during World War II. So now remember, this is World War II is also going to change how we deal with Christmas or how we perceive Christmas. We get into World War II, at least America does, December 7th, 1941, with the bombing of Pearl Harbor. In 1942, you see movies like Holiday Inn with Bing Crosby, where he sings White Christmas. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, right? Okay, and what are we you know, lamenting or wishing we were, we were wishing soldiers were wishing their home from the war with their family. And so you start to see more of a, a Christmas is about family kind of feel. 1943, same thing. Uh, I'll be home for Christmas. Bing Crosby sings. That's when that's produced. I'll be home for Christmas if only in my dreams, right? So there's this whole change from um, the religious holiday or the Santa Claus into this extra mutation of Christmas is about family. In 1946, we see the movie It's a Wonderful Life, which happened to be a flop at the box office. And it's it's hard for us to think about that now. It, it was a flop at the box office. It, like nobody really liked it, but television revived it. So we see it every year at Christmas because it is one of the greatest Christmas movies of all time. And again, it's not religious in orientation. It's not about the birth of Christ, but it's a redemption story. And so you see uh, It's a Wonderful Life again and again, and you just get used to the characters, and it, it gives you warm fuzzies. So 1950, the nativity scenes are now being sold commercially. Okay, remember nativity scenes go back to St. Francis in, in 1200-somethings. Okay, nativity scenes are, are sold commercially. They're, they're out on people's lawns. Uh, the Christmas lights have dropped. The cost of lighting had dropped so much that now people are putting Christmas lights out on their, their lawns. And now we're seeing gaudy displays. And that's where we get to 1965 and Charlie Brown laments the over-commercialization of Christmas. Now, that's a quick overview of the traditions of Christmas. I want to close with the quotation for contemplation, and I want to tell you what's coming in the next episode. So hold on a second. The, the quotation for contemplation is this. This is by the historian David McCullough. He says, history is who we are and why we are the way that we are. And so if we understand history, then we're going to know a lot about why we're doing what we're doing. And, and I hope that I, I helped you understand history here. Okay, so in the next episode, I'm going to talk about the 12 days of Christmas. If you've ever heard this song and thought, it's kind of bizarre, there's a reason why it's bizarre, and we'll talk about it. We'll also talk about the Feast of Epiphany. In many countries of the world, that's Christmas, not Christmas Day, but the Feast of Epiphany, which comes 12 days later. See the link? 
I'll talk about some of my favorite Christmas carols and a deep theological impact and leadership in the Christmas story. That's what's coming in the next episode. Hey, if you like this episode, please subscribe. Please stay tuned and come back and listen to the next episode because it's going to round out your understanding of Christmas traditions. Merry Christmas. Thank you.